This is an IMA podcast. The Institute of Modern Art is a contemporary art space in Brisbane, Australia. Since 1975, we have been presenting cutting-edge visual arts through our annual program of exhibitions, public programs, publications, and off-site initiatives by local, national, and international artists. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where the IMA now stands, the land of the Yuggera and Turrbal people. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello everyone, um, welcome, thanks for coming. Um, I'm Lehan Jensen van Rensburg. I'm co-chair for Imagine uh, with Callum who's here somewhere as well, <laughs> back there. Um, Imagine is the Emerging Architects Group, uh, which is part of the Australian Institute of Architects. Uh, we do a lot of work in the background supporting and advocating for architects, and uh, we also organise events, like events like this one tonight. Uh, luckily, this one was mostly organised by the IMA, so thanks to them for doing that. I would uh, like to begin today by acknowledging the Turrbal and Yagara people, the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and I pay my respects to the elders past and present. I would also like to extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Um, Talara was at the entry before, but if you have any questions about this, oh, there she is. <laughs> um, yep, uh, if you have any questions about this uh, location or about the exhibition, direct them towards her. I don't know very much at all. <laughs> Um, and the bathrooms are, if, if you go back towards um, the reception where you came from, just at the stairs if you need them, and exits that way. Um, now I'll introduce our panellists for tonight, starting with our facilitator this evening, which is Inika Dane. Uh, Inika is an award-winning curator currently based in Mianjin, Brisbane. She has lived and worked in cities across the world and has an academic background in contemporary art theory, climate change law, policy, photography and journalism. Inika currently works as senior curator at UAP, a global leader in the field of public art and design. And our panelist for tonight is uh, Claire, uh, Claire Kennedy, architect from Five Mile Radius, uh, whose work you might have seen in the exhibition tonight. Then we've got Maria Nelson Malloy, fashion designer from Brisbane label Nelson Malloy and the Chasing Zero Project uh, based in West End. And then my friend Emma Healy, um, architect formerly at Red Dog Architects, but she's just gone out on her own. So if you have any ideas for projects, talk to her. Um, and now we'll pass it over. Um, thanks so much, Lehan, and um, to everyone for coming out tonight. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we um, are meeting on, the Turrbal and Yagara, and um, pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, really happy to be here um, with our three wonderful um, makers and thinkers and builders and doers. Um, Claire to my immediate left, or everyone's right, and then uh, Maria in the middle, and Emma. Um, and so we're here to talk about the topic of designing with intention, interdis interdisciplinary approaches to circular design, um, a topic that was gifted to me. I didn't make it up, so thanks so much for um, crafting that brief. And we're obviously um, sitting within the context of Talia Pierce's wonderful exhibition, um, An Alternative Economics, 
which um, I think you've all just had a peruse through. I saw everyone um, having a look just now, so that's great. And the works in the exhibition kind of collectively call for a reassessment and a reimagining of how we define kind of value um, materially, culturally, and as a society. So it's a really wonderful premise, particularly in this um, moment of time to explore um, and kind of push the boundaries of entrenched paradigms. So um, we'll jump into the conversation and we'll have time for questions at the end. But I wanted to start by thinking about and kind of situating where we are in the world. So um, Mianjin, Brisbane, and ask each of you, um, does the place you work from and that you live in influence your work and the conversations you're accessing and contributing to? Do you want to start at the far end there, Emma? I can see you nodding. Sure. Um, so I live in the northwestern suburbs of Brisbane um, in a terrible country, and that's where I grew up as well. And I call myself a suburban utopian because I have lived in the suburbs my whole life and I think that, you know, in the electorate of Ryan that's recently turned green with Elizabeth Watson-Brown, a female architect, being elected as our rep, which is amazing. Um, since I've been in that place for a while, I start started to realise there's a lot of um, alternative community resilience movements actually happening in the suburbs. Um, also because we're on the edge of the Dagula Ranges, it's kind of... Um, created a sort of edge condition in that suburb where, yes, it's suburban, it's 20 minutes drive from the city, but it's also got semi-rural areas. I can drive 10 minutes to my local farmer. Um, and also it's, it, that has kind of built a, um, the ability to connect with my local food movement in a way that's pretty hyper-local. Um, my kids go to community school, Pine Community School in Banya, which again is like starting to build this um, <clears throat> democratic education system that's pretty unique in Brisbane but also really close to where I live and I feel like I fit in the kind of energy and shelter aspect of um, trying to create an alternative um, movement I suppose in the community so yeah I guess hyperlocal Capera northern western suburbs does influence my day-to-day -day and my practice here. Yeah thank you. Maria do you want to go next? Sure. Uh, so I practice both my work at West End in a collective. So in my building, Vacant Assembly, there are a group of architects and artists and myself and all of us really do aim towards making things circular. We use a lot of um, definitely recycled Gar um, gar garments, objects, all those kinds of things. So um, uh, the other thing that I'd like to talk about with regards to Brisbane is that I feel as though collectively we surpass genres and that people from different kinds of walks of life can um, work together and make things happen in a far easier way because the economics of living in Brisbane is a lot simpler than it is in other major cities. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that. I mean, I was in Sydney before here and I lived in a lot of different places and just that kind of collective help that I've noticed amongst communities is really nice. There's a generosity, I think, in Brisbane that doesn't necessarily exist in some of the other bigger cities on the eastern seaboard. Mm -hmm. 
I know I feel the same that we're kind of the underdogs a little bit compared yeah. to some of those, you know, larger um, cities. And so that kind of makes us all stick together and this where the where the wrap bags or something, which is yeah. kind of fun. And I think that yeah, that that's what's influencing us at the moment. Um, our practice is really about an, a creating a network of people who can give us things to create with and then us also finding people who want them. So um, I guess the thing that influences us the most day-to-day -day in Brisbane is the relationships we form with, say, contractors as architects or, um, yeah, with customers. Uh, and then the, I guess the other thing that really influences us here is the climate and the context of the... of of the city, we're lucky to live somewhere that has a reasonably temperate climate, so we're not forced into really heavy forms of construction and we can start to work with lightweight materials and openings and that then starts to inform how we live and the kind of um, the planning of our buildings and the materials we can work with. We're so lucky here to be able to work with timber and, and in other places timber isn't uh, um, a resource that's, uh, you know, really widely applicable as many different parts of a building. So I guess, yeah, the not only it's the people that inform our work, but it's the the materials and then our ability to sort of use them with an ease here. Um, I think there's a luxury in that in a way that you don't have to, you know, well, I mean, there's a juxtaposition, I think, because on the one hand, we've encumbered, for example, um, the river so heavily with infrastructure and roads, and but then there is this alternate kind of hyper-local conversation because I'm just thinking my own kind of personal commute, which is, you know, half an hour each way to work, and that's, you know, most people have, um, you know, that or longer, and it's these kind of hidden costs in design in the bigger scale, like the design of a city or um, kind of those spatial designs that um, we kind of often um, easily ignore, readily ignore, and we just can't kind of continue to do that, I suppose, when everyone's, you know, just noticing right now the cost of fuel and, um, you know, climate change, which um, for everyone in this room, probably preaching to the converted, but it's really only just become a discussion in a more kind of pop kind of way, I think. Um, so I kind of, I wanted to interrogate a little bit this idea of circular design or circular economy because it is thrown around a lot at the moment and um, I just wondered how each of you kind of interpret that within your practices or, you know, what does it mean to you? What are the challenges? Are there easy wins uh, or what are the difficulties? And maybe, Claire, you've got to work in this exhibition that maybe could talk to that um, to get us started. Yeah, I guess, um, and, and there's lots of architects in the room, and the question is how can we reuse materials in the, in the building going forward? So if you're designing something and then it's a knockdown and rebuild or partial rebuild, it's the, con the question is constantly what's the flow of people talking to people, the flow of money, the flow of storing materials, how's it going to work? Um, and there's so many potential pitfalls and roadblocks along that that it does become quite difficult. So I guess the approach of five mile radius is just to get in and try and do it and 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 use that process to kind of figure out where some of those issues are. So this um, 
this work, we'll call it a work, it's some furniture we made out of waste, um, that is um, out the front is... So the process for making that basically is um, Hutchinson's Builders, who you guys obviously know, or a lot, sorry, obviously is the wrong word, a lot of you would know, there's a big builder in Brisbane called Hutchies, and they are working on a building, 444 Queen Street, it's a 26-storey building, it's been there since 1956, Um, and like they're doing a great job in that they're maintaining the structural um, columns and slab and then everything else is going and then it's going to become a new building that looks absolutely nothing like the building it does today which is phenomenal and there's so much complexity in that so as an adaptive reuse project that's just fantastic that people are doing that rather than starting afresh um, so yeah Hachi's just asked us if we would be able to come in assess what was there and do we want any of it it's like do you want our waste and it's actually kind of better for them if we take it because that's one you know less load to the um to the resource recovery center which saves them money so we said sure we'll take it and so we went in and assessed what we wanted we ended up taking a whole lot of office furniture in this instance and a lot of linings from walls and then we just see what we can make with it um and uh, we do that process sort of semi-speculatively, semi-backed by the IMA, which is awesome to have people that at least just chuck in a little bit of money to the to the um, equation. And what what we also did alongside that was go, all right, so we're making this stuff and it's great and look, we can sell it back to the architects and potentially we can make a profit from it. So it is profitable. But also um, what was going to happen to it, with it if we didn't do this? And so we... Tracked, we wrote a list of every material on this floor that we looked at, and this was in with students from um, uh, Bond University. And then we went to the Resource Recovery Centre where it will be going, which is um, a pretty interesting place. And where, again, they're doing phenomenal work trying to separate just God knows what, coming out of skip bins into t- into types of waste. And the, the, the complexities involved in doing that are beyond it's enormous but they um what did transpire is that absolutely nothing coming out of that building was being retained in its current state or being upcycled it was all being downcycled and then given to something like you know concrete becomes road base or hardwoods are shredded to become compost or um plasterboards uh chipped to become gypsum which is used as a fertilizer so like, that was an interesting outcome. Absolutely nothing out of this building was actually being used in a circular fashion. Um, and so, I mean, well, actually, no, I shouldn't say that. It is being used in a circular fashion, but it's being downcycled through an energy is added to it to get it back into a state that it can be reused again. So there's an opportunity there, we think, to keep things in, a, in their current state and reuse them in their highest value. And I guess that's what this exhibition was about for us. Um, and that's the position we're keeping to try and take adding value to waste, I guess. Can you talk quickly? Um, thank you. Can you talk quickly about the time that that took? Because that's usually used as an excuse as to why things wouldn't be upcycled, or you know, like yeah. wh- why have we become so time poor? And yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like, it's not even an excuse. Like, I feel for these guys at Hot Cheese because they want us to do it, you know? They're like, come on, help us. And we're going, oh, God, we're six guys with a ute. Like, we don't know how to do this. And the 
the reality is that we just need slightly Every, trust, I think every, I used to come to these and do panel discussions and go, oh, guys, we need to recycle more, we need to do better. I think it is actually happening, but it is just taking time for it to get there um, and we need to keep working on it and not go, oh, tick, we figured that out. It's on the in the instance of 444 in you know, Queen Street, the case is that they need more space for skips on site. Yeah. So if they have more... Yeah to allow separation. And it's things like all the furniture out there that you can see that we've made, it's made out of um, steel or aluminium powder-coated steel um, sections. And desks, desks, for instance, it's much quicker for them to grind the legs off rather than unscrew the legs and then remove that, that undercarriage. And then, so we've got all the undercarriages back so we just unscrew them and we can actually make kind of cool furniture out of them. It just, you have to bend your mind a little bit and go, oh, this stuff's actually cool if you use it in a certain way. Um, so yeah, it is about time. And then maybe that's where like this interdisciplinary kind of approach might come in where you invite people from other disciplines, not just builders or architects to have a fresh look at these components and like dream up new uses that no one else has seen. But Emma and Maria, did you have anything um, that you wanted to expand on just in terms of how you um, operate or understand circular design or the circular economy? I can just building on what Claire's saying, I think as architects we have the responsibility to look at buildings, like adaptive reuse has been around for a really long time, but um, to be really critical about what we actually have to remove, what we actually have to change. Um, there are big challenges around when a building's being reclassified to be a different kind of building, what the requirements are to make that space safe and equitable for everyone. Um, there are really big challenges around when materials are being reused, how they're um, certified, you know, for their fire rating and all the requirements in a commercial building, it be does become more complicated. And that's why I think, it, yeah, again, comes down to time and valuing people's time so that an architect isn't paid for um, or a designer isn't necessarily paid for the artefact that they create in the end, but they're paid for the ingenuity of what they've actually um, not designed or not had to make. Um, so I think Tony Fry calls it elimination design. You know, how, how can you, um, and again, design for disassembly, that's been around for a really long time. How do you make something that can be taken apart easily? Um, all the concepts are there, but um, it's just the overlap between that and then the legislation sometimes becomes really complicated, I think, yeah. Yeah, because when something has to be kind of bomb-proof, essentially, like um, there's a lot of glue and nails that goes into that <laughs> for OH&S re reasons or, um, yeah, even in the public art realm, we're always up against that entrapment kind of, yeah, no uh, safety, I guess. So, But I think that's a really key point, that designing with intention to disassemble from the beginning um, somehow. Maria... Because you're kind of in a in a different field, it'd be good to yeah, sure. Yeah. So obviously, in the fashion industry, um, it becomes a whole different thing. Um, but also, there are some points which cross over. Even the intention to disassemble. Um, so I guess Nelson Malloy has always had an essence of being timeless and being versatile and being built to last. So that's at its core. And so um, as those garments are created, the intention is built into the garment to start with. 
Um, and then as a part of the second pro project, the Chasing Zero project, we have initiated concepts where we use the waste from the cutting of the original garments in conjunction with post-consumer waste to create um, edgy and unique pieces um, with a combination of intergenerational textile skills so that uh, the garments become kind of more unique and interesting. But in the same token, once again, with the Nelson Malloy pieces, each one is designed so that it can actually be taken apart very easily or biodegrade at the end of its life. Yeah. Mm, yeah, no, very much so. Um, I mean, I think creativity is a big part of all of your practices and I guess um, there's a lot of discussion about staying local, but um, I'm curious to know what are the benefits or losses of staying local when you think about um, influences, um, things you've seen in other places, like uh, can, can there be a healthy exchange with um, you know, faraway places, um, whether it's materially or kind of in a um, theoretical way? I think um, there's a place for both, certainly at this stage, because I feel like there's technologies and innovations happening that we don't necessarily have access to yet, but it's good to support the industry, which then tells the market that we are into supporting that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think we always have to keep looking abroad also, not just to like um, the emerging technologies, but also what's going on. Like it's easy to turn away from the rubbish problem when it's like out in the middle of the ocean and things like that. It's pretty pretty sweet here in Brisbane most of the time. But um, I, I think like, for example, the project that we worked on with Claire... I'm in Jarabah, well, obviously, the, um, well, not obviously, I'm going to tell you, the table was made by Claire from hyperlocal concrete waste and the aggregate was beach plastic that was collected on Minjarabah. Um, but then we coupled it with a chair that was made in Italy from recycled toys. So um, we didn't have a chair made locally from recycled toys. So I think there's a, that's a sort of small example, but I think there's a place for both is what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, the like there's a. I was thinking of another project we touched base on, which was the project in Fiji that I think you're probably still working on, and a lot of our earlier influences were from India. And I think that if we're not getting materials from abroad, we certainly need to get some ideas because it's a case in in sort of some countries which are a little more frugal in their approach purely by necessity, it's nice for us to call it frugal and sort of romanticise the notion, but they kind of, um, the, their approach to working with what they have uh, tends to unlock ideas for us here that actually you don't see because you're kind of just in this Western bubble where we have stuff that we need. So, um, yeah, I, I think... Yeah, materials from abroad. Yeah, also I, I was thinking of that, those eco-birdie chairs. We don't do cool recycled toy chairs, here's like that, and it's now I think about it and I go like, why don't we do that? If someone did that, I would buy that. So it's kind of like you do need these ideas to, to come ab around and infiltrate. Yeah, and there's been a lot of uh, talk about using nylon and petroleum-based fabrics and 
recreating them as new fabrics that can be once again used for the technology for the more sustainable fibres or the more responsible fi fibres um, is not as advanced for po using post-consumer waste. So as far as using like textiles that um, are being milled, so a linen, the off, all of the off product from that is then turned into other fibres. But as far as technology is concerned for chopping up cottons and linens and creating them into another new textile, which is awesome and exciting and the technology is, is happening, it's just not happening fast enough. Mm. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so uh, we're here in 2022, but I'm interested in like um, where this journey, for lack of a better word, started for all of you. Like, is there a pivotal memory in childhood or an informative person that was a mentor or, you know, that um, got you on this train? Um, and like, uh, yeah, where you began this sustainable modus operandi, <laughs> you prepared. <laughs> the, eco, the eco train, take it really broadly. I was thinking like, when did I start thinking about sustainability in a really broad term? Um, a, yeah, broad definition of it. I remember being on like a family holiday and my parents took me to Protested Falls, which is part of the Nightcap National Park which is now one of the most, um, one of the largest subtropical rainforests, continuous subtropical rainforests in the world and World Heritage listed. And I remember I was like seven or eight and I was crying because I had a leech on my leg. And um, mum was saying, you know, people lived in trees to save this waterfall for you to come and see one day and you're crying over a leech. And I just, I remember... Um, I felt really embarrassed and also went home and like read a bit about it and um, that direct act, that was the first, well potentially they say one of the first um, direct action um, activist tactics in relation to an environmental um, protest and then went on to inform a lot of, of similar kind of direct action, nonviolent direct, direct action, um, successful protests. So I... Yeah, that was a, a pivotal memory for me. Struck by how much we can actually change and then um, reading about a traditional custodian who could then come back and visit that land um, that they actually owned because those white folks did that was actually, um, like, makes me realise why can be good custodians too sometimes. So, yeah. Mine was a way simpler kind of thing <laughs> in that I watched my grandmother wash out a bread bag and put it on the line because it was important. She was in country New South Wales and... Like a plastic so, bread bag? Yeah, a plastic bread Like a tip-top sort of bread bag. Yeah, she thought, wow, this needs to be rescued and saved and obviously that comes from a time where there wasn't much. And so I think from that I figured don't waste things. And it was just really very simply that. And then I watched my mum do the same stuff. Matriarchal DNA of not wasting things. <laughs> I don't know. I was never into sustainability, actually. At, certainly at uni. It was my lowest performing subject. Um, <laughs> and then um, in my early professional career, I was sort of doing stadiums in Dubai. And you can imagine that's a bit fraught. Um, but then I, after that, I was a bit... 
I wasn't feeling great. So I left and I went to India. Um, and I, that was where one material, which was dirt, and one mm. building material, which was the brick, sort of taught me a whole lot of stuff. And then that sort of changed me. And so I had that sort of cliched Indian moment. Um, yep. And I guess what it was was that you saw a culture who was taking something from the ground, burning it, and then creating this thing. And then this thing was this symbol, actually, because where, if some of the places where they were creating bricks in India were really quite happy places and there was, you know, there was an economy behind it and, and they were just building with it and it was all right. Sure, they were probably burning car tyres and things to fuel the kiln, but the... The it was it was an all right process. Then there was other places where it was just pure slave labour, um, and there was a lot of great um, people, friends of mine who were documenting that process, and it was quite harrowing. So I learnt, wow, this one simple material means very different things to very different people. And then there was one architect um, who kind of taught me how you could be really simple as an architect and actually just. Um, teach people to use things sensibly and that was a guy called Laurie Baker and he's um, an Englishman uh, from Birmingham but he somehow wound up in India after the war and he started building with brick um, and just what he could do with one brick to elevate the human spirit was beyond belief. There's another architect from um, South America called Eladio Diaz, I'm going to say this so wrong because some architect yell it properly. Eladio DST, come on. Anyway, that guy was also just like a brick genius. Um, and these guys could just turn a brick into a wall, into a ceiling, into a roof. It was paving. It could be a table. It could be somewhere for the kids to play. It could be absolutely anything. And it all is just dirt. They dug out of the ground and they burnt with the made with you know with these car tire fires. And and, you know, it could provide ventilation and it could provide... And it's, it, it, it's just a, a piece of clay. It has no value, you know. And so then I, I learnt that the things that we're using actually are... Uh, they have meaning and they're tools for something. And that made me think very differently about the way that I was approaching materiality in our own architecture, I guess. Yeah, um, thank you all for sharing. That is really great. And I guess like what I'm hearing is like a humbleness across all um, kind of anecdotes and experiences and simplicity like is kind of caught in all of them, but also, I guess, an awareness that um, we will never know everything and there's always something to learn from others and and other disciplines, I suppose. So um, that might lead into the next question, which is um, just wondering, you know, what you have learnt from collaborating with um, people from other disciplines. Um, is it something that you proactively kind of seek out to collaborate with um, people from other fields or does it happen just naturally? Emma, I know you work with your partner who's a horticulturalist. Does that... Um, you know, foster any unique creativity or efficiencies, for example, in your work? Um, it sounds really dumb, but, mm. you know, in uni when everyone designs their first building and they go, it's kind of like a tree, but, like, actually that would be the best thing. Um, and often, like, we get clients who come to us with a spatial or social problem to solve and they innately think that it will need to be a building that will solve that problem. Um, and if you're an architect and you go, 
oh, it's you need more shade and some covered outdoor space and some more privacy, and would a tree do that, maybe? Um, they'll go, oh, yeah, you're right, we don't need an architect. But if, um, <laughs> if you go with the horticulturalist and say, oh, well, what's your soil type and orientation and the climate, and we can pick just the right tree for you. But that's kind of silly, but also I think it comes back to that whole thing of... Um, people's time, valuing people's time and ingenuity, not the actual artefact that they create. And um, I think, you know, architect that I, two architects I really love, French architects, Lacaton and Vassal, they had a project I remember hearing about where they were commissioned to redesign a town square or to refurbish a town square in a beautiful historic part of France. And um, in the end, they decided, they ended up recommending a different maintenance regime and that was it. And to me, that's design thinking. It doesn't involve an artefact um, and a really good example of why you should pay people to think, not to necessarily create an object all the time. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Marina? Um, from a collaborative standpoint, yeah. I guess, uh, in my studio space, it's in a building full of different people having different practices, but also um, within my own business. I have a team of girls that are women, actually, they're not girls, and they all have children. And so they all bring their own skills to the space and then they have their own studios at home where... Um, so they run their micro-businesses um, and also work for me in that space. And so together we can solve a lot of different issues. One of the girls was in the army and she taught a team of men how to sew as quickly as possible. And so with that I can work out one of the key skills on how to make things happen as fast as possible. Because as we all know, when we're reconstructing things or constructing things, it's time equals dollars and um, if you've got somebody with those kind of skills it does help the process. I also have another woman who um, has worked for major fast fashion chains across the world and so her intricate attention to detail can help in the initial problem solving places. Um, it's also nice to have a few kind of fairy girls working for you who come up with <laughs> <laughs> some modern kind of concepts to things too. So um, I think that also uh, works in a way where I'm giving a bit of power to the mums who... It's, it's, it's a struggle to find a job where you can sort of come to work and have a good time and then go and work on your own particular projects. Um, but then they're also a force to be reckoned with because as they come into the space, there's... I'm here to do this and I'm away from my children. I need a bit of time to be myself. So, yeah, it's been good. It's been, it's been powerful working with the mums, yeah. Mm, really beautiful exchange by the sounds mm, of it. Yeah. And you might see, like, the community in a way is like a collaborator with you because you do call-outs and people bring their, you know, unloved garments and there is an exchange yeah, exactly. there and that's very much, like, yeah. part of your work. So, yeah, that's exactly right. So... Um, even in each garment, we use post-consumer waste, and so um, every couple of months we will request a specific kind of garment that has a lot of integrity, like a T-shirt, 
which everyone has thousands of, well, not quite, but a lot, and there's not much attention is paid to how many resources go into a T-shirt, but there's a lot, um, even more so than a dress or a silk blouse. Um, it's a bit of a tax on the earth, and so pe and people treat them as, like, I don't know, the equivalent to a bit of a dish rag or something. So Why is that? Why what? Yeah, give me the T-shirt rundown real quick. Why does it take so many Yeah, resources? why? More than the silk blouse, I want to know. Uh, okay, because, well, for one, the cotton is... Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, there are some people out there doing some good work with reducing the amount of um, of water that is used in the original growing, but it's also the actual production of the cotton so that it becomes that specific fibre. Mm. It's also the fact that it costs $5 or $10, and so people are being paid, and so it's not necessarily... Um, as far as, you know, like an intensive resource damaging kind of thing, it's more that um, if you imagine how much somebody's paid to make that T-shirt... It's, it's exploiting a human resource. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not nice. So, um, so for us, we try to reincorporate those T-shirts. Or men's business shirts are another thing, which have a lot of integrity in them. I mean, look at, if you look at a men's business shirt and the amount of design, energy, buttons, all of it is... You know, there's a lot of integrity in that garment to start with. So we're about to release a very whimsical play on some old men's business shirts that have been um, dyed and stitched and um, made into something a little bit more exciting. Watch this. Very like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a top interest me quite club. Oh, well, it depends because our furniture stuff, we um, deal with very different people to our architecture stuff. The furniture stuff is interesting. We do – so we, our studio in West End is half with um, my mate Sam Seljak who runs Seljak Brand. And they – so they're in the world of closed-loop sort of textiles. They mostly make blankets. And so I sit next to her and I listen to the conversation she's having all day and then we sort of get together at lunch and talk about like how – it's lovely what we're doing, but um, is there going to be a market for it in two years if, every, if, the, if everyone stops buying things because there's a giant recession or are we just creating more stuff even, even though what we're doing is quite ethical? So those conversations are kind of good because you have to check yourself. So I guess we collaborate a bit just with people doing other sustainable kind of things. And then the, the, one, the other people that we love... I love talking to demolition contractors. Love it. Just like, how are you going to take that apart? Oh, yeah, then what do you do with it? Oh, yeah, then where's it going? Me too. I'm married to one. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Oh, hang on, what? You're married to one? Yeah. Oh, mate, I want to go deep. That's what I mean. Like, I want to go deep. Like, I want to know everything. Like, I know so your father-in-law got a whole house from talking to a demolition company. Yeah, because there's so much stuff to be had, but then you turn into a hoarder and you're like, oh, are we designers? Are we a demolition yard? And then you just – you need space and you need a truck and you it's not – yeah. But so, yeah, I'm interested in those guys. I'm, and I'm interested then in the construct, the project managers who are like, you got to be quick. you got to be quick. Get in here, get in. And you're like, oh, why, man? And you're so like trying to sort through those relationships. That's the funnest bit, actually. Like, yeah. The gymnastics of the relation. I'm repeating what you said because I still have the microphone. <laughs> 
Um, thanks, Claire. Yeah, I mean, well, chemistry and relationships, everyone knows that, you know, a lot can be born from that and a lot can go wrong from that. Um, but I'm curious to know, uh, uh, for some reason lately, risk has come up in a lot of conversations and um, I'm wondering what role risk plays in each of your practices. Um, not just, you know, is operating in a circular way risky from an economic point of view, um, but um, your willingness to take risks, I suppose, and try new things and the answer's probably evident in a way because we're all sitting here, but um, yeah. We installed a table the day before the exhibition was going to open and then I took it out because I was scared it was going to fall on a child. Like, there's risk in working with the recycled materials and it wakes you up at 3am and you're like, oh, I don't actually know anything about the table legs that I took out of that building. So, yeah, the risk for us is just in... Um, um, there's some structural risk. And as Emma said, there's also some fire-related risk, which is gets concerning on a large scale and there is economic risk we don't always make money actually quite often we lose it but um you've got a really great sense of purpose yeah yeah sometimes there's a lot of value in that i guess teaching people we're well. seeing yeah i know that's it <laughs> uh, teaching people as well oh. um but that's not a risk that's a value I guess for, for me the risk is just always am I on the right tangent? Have I picked the right thing that people are going to purchase? But, I yeah, that's just a trend prediction process, I guess, yeah, more than anything else. Mm. I don't know. I have a few different answers to this question. Um, <clears throat> the riskiest project I'm currently working on is the one in Fiji. I don't really want to talk about it because it feels so risky. <laughs> but uh, um, it definitely is the one that keeps me awake at night because it's um, post-disaster reconstruction work and trying to do that in a way that's safe for everyone involved um, is, is really risky. But I think it's worth it to try and... Like, for that, that community in particular... They have so many amazing um, vernacular construction techniques that are being lost um, that are really have, have proven the test of time to, to withstand category five. I think I'll, oh no, I came back. Category five cyclones um, and are really ingenious in a sense. Um, and the, the thought that they would be lost and these people would be subjugated to not having those skills when they have, I think it's, it's worth the risk in a way. So how do you navigate that tension between, on the one hand, wanting to work in a circular fashion and reuse materials that already exist, for example, but then have to meet, like, rigorous building requirements and, and with materials that have, like, a proven structural integrity, for example? I don't really know the answer to that right now but um like one one avenue you can take is um <clears throat> i mean i actually have a friend who does a lot of um bamboo, bamboo construction for, sorry um yeah does bamboo construction for festivals and things like that 
Um, and he, because of fes festivals have a totally, and or installations and things like that have a totally different requirement um, than a permanent structure would have, they test things in really practical ways by putting like 50 people on them and jumping on them and seeing what happens. And um, sometimes that's a, the best you can do and probably the most rigorous thing you can do, but somebody takes the, the risk for, for trying that, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, and I mean, do you think that this progression towards a circular economy or even the discussion that we're having is a luxury that only affluent countries um, can have or do you see it happening in more organic ways in other countries? They're just getting on and doing it. Or, you know, what have you learned in Fiji, um, Emma? What have you learned in India, Claire? And I know you've done travel also and, you know, seen a lot of different places. Um, what have you learned from that or what are your observations? I guess that <laughs> as far as up upcycling is concerned, it's sort of something in the clothing and textile industry that people have been doing for a really long time. Even rag weaving and those kind of traditional sorts of art, yeah, it can be art. Um, so I guess that's been going on for a, a, a really long time. Um, can, can you, what was the question? <laughs> so bad. Um. Just about cost and time um, uh, yeah. and more developed countries versus less de uh, developed yeah, countries. Luxury um, living here. Turning, having the time even to turn your mind to the idea of a circular economy, for example. Yeah, I guess that in other economies people are using everything anyway as far as textiles are concerned. Well, they're trying to. Um, but also... I do believe it's a luxury. Even my husband says things like, some of those concepts are truly elitist, Maria. <laughs> and I, I think potentially it's true. I think that um, a lot of people are doing things where it's just from necessity, like you were saying, and that things are just happening out of necessity. Uh, but also we need to use the terminologies that we're starting to use. Like I keep saying to people, I didn't have words for what I was actually doing for a really long time. And so um, as uh, as the, these things become talked about more frequently, it's easier to communicate what you're trying to achieve. So I guess it is a luxury. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think it's tied up with the whole concept of relationships and holistic, I guess, um, communities like in parts of Fiji where caring cultures and where care, caring roles are valued and that hasn't been completely demolished by... Uh, pardon the word demolished... ..completely eroded by colonialism and capitalism. People have the capacity to have a more caring relationship with the building that they're custodians of as well. So natural buildings, and Claire would know more about this than me, but natural buildings almost need a maintenance and caring um, attention as you would give a child or a, a partner and um, that makes them untenable for people who live Western lifestyles. So where the culture is still values care and attention and slowness and... Um, I think it makes natural building materials and things like that more 
possible. Yeah. Yeah, I always used to talk about the romanticism of maintaining a building <laughs> when I had a kid. And I'm like, oh, no. I just got oiling this thing. It's, like, beyond me. Like, we're living this entire thing, this entire house. It just needs to be oiled all the time. It's so thirsty. And it's, like, in India I saw the same thing. I romanticised the idea of maintaining the mud hut annually. Yep, hard. But you you can learn from that slowness, I guess, that... So, and I saw in India there were some of the eminent architects like B.V. Doshi and he was, you know, giving talks and about circularity in his own – he would never say the word circularity – but that that they, India needed to maintain those ideas and not jump too much into the Western kind of lifestyle. So, yeah, I hope that they don't, but they are trying – the thing is they're better at not doing it our way actually and just doing it their own way. It's interesting, isn't it? I feel like we're talking about with commercial, like um, industrial building materials, we're trying to work out a way that we can reuse them and they can maybe biodegrade or whatever. And with natural building, it's like the opposite. Like how do we stop it from degrading? It's like, yeah, a totally different mentality. Mm, yeah. Um, I've got... Lots of questions, <laughs> but um, we'll open it up to the floor in a second. My, maybe my last one um, is just uh, a larger question about... <laughs> Claire's just getting Gee. ahead of the <laughs> game. Uh, <laughs> do you think it's possible to stop all production with newly harvested finite materials, like from this second? and circulate and reuse only what already exists across buildings, architecture, fashion, coffee cups, <laughs> all the things that we use. Um, or you can take a pass and we can <laughs> open it up, see w- if anyone has questions. I will say, I don't know the like statistics, but if there was, I feel like there's so much empty office space in the CBD and there's so many people with holiday homes and investment properties that... Yeah, we could house a lot of people, for sure. But I don't know the answer. Yeah, I don't know the answer either. Sorry. But I, we should definitely stop being super super extractive and keep reusing what we have. Trees are good, though. We could keep growing and, ex- and extracting trees, but in a way that's more supportive of an understory and biodiversity and stuff would be good. Um, uh, we haven't quite figured out concrete, which is the the thing in the... But we are getting a bit closer, but concrete's still pretty extractive and is responsible for, like, 12% of carbon emissions worldwide, which is actually a lot. But um, I don't know how you build without concrete either. Do you know? It's really good stuff. It's really good stuff. goes off. <laughs> hard. <laughs> Anyway, so that's my dilemma. <laughs> Use every drop. I guess from a textile perspective, uh, I think that potentially at the moment a combination of new and regenerative textiles is great. Um, it is possible to use post-consumer waste, but it would be interesting to see the technology arise where that post-consumer waste can be turned into new textiles because I really think that there's probably enough already made <laughs> for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, on that note, does anyone 
My question is probably mainly for Claire. I work in the fit-out space, so largely doing large offices. So your um, conversation with Hutchies really interests me, and I wonder if you have talked to them or talked to any of the demo contractors about the possibility of reuse of furniture in exactly the same state. Because we have a lot of fit-outs, and I'm doing one at the moment, where they're pulling out glass partitions, there's a whole 2,000 square metres of furniture that's going to the tip, and it's resources, we know exactly what they are, we, we've documented them, but I don't know how to connect the dots to the next person who actually wants the resources. Yeah, neither do I. It's like, so how do you solve that? If I had the, if I had the answer, I'd be rich. Like, it's kind of a case of storage space from what I can figure out it's some it's like the we need better there's a there's a well actually no the way it could work really well but we haven't no one yet has quite nailed it to my mind but they're doing pretty well in the Netherlands there's a um, organization called Rotor DC and they harvest you've got to kind of you gotta you'd have to be like an office furniture one you can't be an office furniture person who also deals with crushed concrete you've got to kind of limit your scope and they have an online marketplace there where they just they take anything from sort of a doorknob through to a it's kind of like a, a facebook marketplace or a gum tree but it's really highly tuned towards specifying and to and they have in in-house engineers who will vet things and check things um, but they themselves, as a resource, do have to have the space to store it. I think that's probably where you'll be coming up against issues. It's like the contract is all up for it, but where are they going to put it between the demolition and then the reuse? And yeah, yeah, we like uh, I've thought about just being that business, but it's like I don't know if I've got quite the energy but the that the answer is that I think that that's the best way to do it it's like we need the we need the mother of all Facebook marketplaces for industry specific um, sourcing because you'd all do it like we've got somebody I'd just go there first point of call because it's not it's not even that fun to buy a $450 chair that you know like it's actually just adds and you've got to argue for, to keep that $450 chair in the scope it's so much easier to find something secondhand and go yeah we'll make that work and then build your scheme around that and like splash out on some really meaningful stuff where you need to that's new did that answer it definitely didn't answer your question that's a very hard question like <laughs> I, I think it answers it just in that I guess I wanted to know how much further ahead you were in the thought and whether you had the solution, but it seems like it's probably still a no. question. No, it's it's we need that business. We need someone to start that business. Does anyone here want to start that <laughs> business? I reckon there's a lot of mines that could house a lot of recycled commercial materials. <laughs> should be like Bunnings. Yeah. Yes, and it should be easy to shop online on a Saturday afternoon and just like know they've got it. I have nothing to add. So if anyone has another question. Just following on from that question um, and response, is there surely not um, a role for government, like for governance because you've got something, an issue there that's incredibly complex and you're basically creating 
you know, a market, you need to create that market, there needs to be incentives or disincentives to waste, like incentives to act. So surely there's a governance role there <clears throat> for the federal government and the other levels as well, potentially. Well, they need to stand up against the corporations who are benefiting from selling new things. So there is an unravelling, in a way, of some structures. The, like, the, the waste levy's done lots of good stuff because there was this waste levy that was introduced, I can't remember when. You'd know more about it than I would, actually, if you're in the, married to a demolition. But there was the waste levy's changed people's capacity to... There's a way, I think it's two, two, in 2024 and it went uh, 2004 and it went from being like $20 a ton to throw stuff out to to it's in a it's in a thing 250 it went up so much and that actually meant that people had to start um, recycling built construction waste which is great and then so that's one thing it's like making it harder to throw stuff out it seems to work pretty well like make it even harder I reckon like does it turn the knob up a little bit more even and then yeah it would be good if the government the, they need to talk to the people that write the construction code and the and then those guys have to talk to the insurers and then you know it's like such a construction is so complicated Uh, Talara did ask me to let you know to please um, check out the exhibition. It's only here for another week. Um, take your time to walk through it and uh, grab a drink if you want it. Um, and yeah, um, have a chat. Thanks. <laughs>